strength through vulnerability, broken vulnerability. That leads us to um, our topic today. We're in a topical teaching series called Passages That Pump Me Up, and we're just looking at some meaningful verses from the Bible. And today's message is a faith story about God's power on display through vulnerability, God's strength through human weakness. Um, I heard this faith story earlier this summer, and I thought when I heard it, it would be so meaningful if our entire church family could hear this. So I asked, I asked if she would be willing to share her story with you all, and she said yes. So um, please welcome my wife, Sarah, to the podium, and let's hear the Lord's word through her today. So, anyway. <laughs> I've been married to this man for over 33 years, and we've been at Windsor Road for more than 28. And this is the first time that I get to preach the sermon. I've been waiting for this day. <laughs> so, actually, I tell Randy all the time he's my favorite preacher. So, anyway. Oh, good, good. Glad we all feel the same way. That's good. So, hi, my name is Sarah, and I'm a grateful believer in Jesus who struggles with compulsive eating. From the time I was a child until recently, I have used food as a way to comfort myself in times of stress, sadness, and loneliness, as well as to celebrate times of joy and love. Though my childhood is loaded with loving memories, good times, and great family gatherings, bitterly interwoven in the tapestry of my life run dark threads of brutality. Though my grandparents helped to start the church I grew up in and loved because I learned the real stories of the Bible and Jesus' love for me, at home, our family didn't always show God's love to each other. Um, brutal punishments, ridicule, and horrible sarcasm made me fearful, lonely, and depressed much of my childhood because I was physically, emotionally, and verbally abused in my family I needed some way to feel better quick. From the time I was very young, I learned to steal food, hide food, and binge on food. Until a little over a year ago, I used to go to the grocery store where I used my debit card so my husband wouldn't know what I was buying. I would get a dessert of some sort and eat most or all of it in the car, then drive by the trash can in the park near our home to throw away the containers and any leftovers, if there were any. But I shouldn't get ahead of myself in my story. I now know that I was born to a narcissistic mother and a codependent father. My mother's narcissism made it impossible for her to love me the way I needed her to love me. The legacy of pain and abuse she endured, she passed down to me. Not all of the time, but a lot of the time. The world revolved around her to a great extent. What I needed as a child was only given when it suited my mother and how she appeared to the world. My father strove to do what he could to ease her pain and demands. 
Though I come from a large family, as the baby in my house, I was left behind a lot. I spent much of my early childhood alone. Food was given to me to make me happy. Even though my mom was a terrible cook, I loved dinner time, especially when it was my turn to pray. My family would groan because I finally had their attention, and I would give thanks for everything, the salt, the pepper, the ketchup, the whatever, <laughs> just because there were people around and my family was listening to me. Making food my drug of choice was modeled best and most often to me by my mother. After a full dinner, I commonly saw my mom sit down with the family to watch TV with a half gallon of ice cream or a bag of chips and sour cream. She'd munch away. Our family had a joke about how horribly my father snored on their wedding night and that if my mom had known, she might not have married him. So my mom spent most nights awake until dawn, reading and eating in bed. She would finally get to sleep when my father left for work. But when there was me to take care of before I was school age, she would say, let's have a party. And that meant her getting a tray of food for me to eat on her bed while she slept. Food meant pseudo-closeness with my mother. It meant fun. It meant getting to do something unusual, except it wasn't unusual in our house. Later, I remember getting myself ready for school alone while my mother finally slept, eating breakfast alone, dressing myself alone. But I had to check in with her at her bedside before I left. She had to inspect what I was wearing. It mattered to her what I looked like to the world, but how I was doing on the inside, not so much. What people thought of her and our family supremely mattered to her. If what I'd chosen to wear wasn't well-matched or wrinkled or simply not to her liking, she'd have me go change. Many mornings, there were arguments with verbal abuse. I would walk to school in survival mode. Mediocre would best describe my work in school, and I'm uh, just now finding out why. With all the stress in my heart, my mind was constantly wandering, thinking of ways to survive at home. What could I do better? How to get away from the abuse? Sometimes in class, I just went to a happier place than the one in which I was living. But when I would re-engage with the math lecture or instructions for an English test, I was lost. I wish I'd known then what I know now. It would have saved me a lot of pain and shame. My school mediocrity wasn't all my fault. My mom rarely let me do any activities after school because that meant she'd have to stop the nap she was taking or get off the phone with one of her sisters or friends. But in latter grade school and junior high, occasionally she'd allow me to be in a choral program or a play. But if I called my mom from a payphone, you remember payphones, don't you? If I called my mom from a payphone to come pick me up after rehearsal, and if I wasn't right at the door when she came, she would rail at me and slap me across the face in the car on the way home. It was there I learned to stuff and to be quiet. The pain and humiliation would be over faster. I remember I begged God to help me in these times. I still believed he loved me, but I felt he couldn't be trusted. He didn't save me from the abuse. I still had to go through it, 
Food, however, was plentiful in our house. It was there. It filled the hurt and the emptiness I felt. It did what I wanted it to do. It could be trusted. And where was my father in all of this? He is a quiet man who did his best to appease my mom. He was and is to this day emotionally weak. He generously provided everything our family needed and a lot of the stuff we wanted. But he rarely stood up to his wife. Both my parents came from hardworking, stoic German families where feelings were never talked about. Actions and anger got work done. Being angry or funny was validated in our house, but sadness or fear was not. When I got to college, a great reprieve came. At Bible College in Cincinnati, I was happily struck by the kind way people treated each other. People really listened to each other. Our professors were approachable, kind, and fair. I began to relax and soak up the love of God and enjoy my life more. I didn't need to stuff my face with ice cream. My circumstances suited me. I wasn't left behind or alone. My grades were better than they'd ever been in high school. Then I met this handsome preaching major with a dazzling smile and an amazing tenor voice. We traveled in some of the same musical groups, and we sang love songs with each other. And in some of the programs, it was really precious. You know how well tenors and sopranos sound together. But after we were married and I was left alone while Randy was out at a quartet rehearsal or a church meeting or golfing, loneliness would set in. I would just graze at home. Something sweet, something salty, something sweet, something salty. After we had the boys, there were many long periods when I followed in my mother's footsteps and ate at night. Don't get me wrong, I will always be grateful that I got to stay home with our sons, but there were many days when my brain had turned to mush and I longed for adult interaction when there was little to be found. Food at night was my solace. From the time Randy and I came to minister here at Windsor Road in 1989 until 2012, I was heavily involved with the worship arts ministry. I used to help plan the music and other Sunday morning experiences, lead worship, and sing on the worship teams. So when Celebrate Recovery brought, was brought to our church community, it seemed natural that I would help those people by singing in one of the CR bands. I didn't think I needed it. I didn't realize that I was one of those people too. So I dabbled in CR for several years until last summer. My low point came a year ago, last July, when I was lonely at home and facing a stressful trip to my dad's house. I went to County Market and bought half a pie. You've seen them. Knowing no one would be at our house, I brought it home and ate the whole thing. When I finished, I knew, Sarah, you need help. This has got to stop. I got back in to celebrate recovery for real as soon as I could. And last August, Randy and I were blessed to attend the Celebrate Recovery Conference at Saddleback Church in California. My addiction to food to, up to this point wasn't just about eating poorly, eating compulsively. It was equally about dishonesty, cover-up, and shame. Well, that had to stop, too. Renewing my commitment to Jesus and Celebrate Recovery made a world of difference in my life. 
I listened during the large group portion of the meetings with the interest of someone who knew how badly she needed to be there. And I began to attend share groups. Share groups are the smaller groups divided by gender where attendees can safely talk about what's going on in their lives. But I must admit, it was hard at first. I knew to my core that I needed the help. I needed other women for God to use in my life to bring about recovery. But I was afraid and ashamed. I was the pastor's wife for Pete's sake. Wouldn't everybody judge me? Wouldn't every woman I met there um, expect me to be way more together and spiritually mature? I was suspicious and broken. Actually, I was suspicious because I was broken. But God showed me his love and kindness time and again in Share Group. Share Group has turned out to be a soft place to land. Having lived most of my life covering up, hiding, and concealing shaming truth, Share Group became a place for me to let down my reinforced walls. When I started, I was nervous and apprehensive. And now, 13 months later, I so look forward to sharing with the women that gather each week. Let me be clear, this is very important. My change of heart about Share Group has been all about God's goodness and work in me, not my efforts. I just had to be willing, and he did the heavy lifting. Being honest about my struggles with the women in Share Group made it tons easier to be honest with my husband and with myself. I needed extra help and extra practice to trust God and Randy with my honesty and my eating. I couldn't just pray a prayer and poof, become a truth teller. I've had to practice being honest, and I'm still practicing. The next thing I knew I needed was to get into a step study. A step study is a very small, gender-specific class of 25 lessons where the attendees really dig into the Christ-centered 12 steps and find even more support. For a number of reasons, there weren't any women available to start a group last fall semester, so I started one last January. That's how desperate I was. For a number of reasons, oh, excuse me. I knew I couldn't just skim over the surface of the 12 steps and eight principles on my own for God to achieve um, any lasting change in my life. Diving off into the deep end of the CR pool has been such a blessing in my life. To be gut-level honest with a few other women from Celebrate Recovery and to walk together this journey, it has been wonderful. We are listening to and praying for each other, and in that way, encouraging the healing that only God can do. It's a beautiful thing, and I wouldn't trade these girls for anything. We're doing what James 5.16 commands. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. We aren't in Celebrate Recovery to advise or fix each other. We're there to help each other, to be honest, and to be supported while God does the healing only he can do. At 55, I feel like I'm at the beginning of my recovery journey. My recovery is hard. There's no way around it. I have to eat. The bombardment of billboards, commercials, and every social occasion, all of these are hurdles to be jumped. So far, I'm getting much better about being honest about what I'm eating. Um, I'm making better choices 
but I'm realizing I'm still eating compulsively, just healthier compulsive eating. I'm still so often trying to eat my way, live my life my way, and that's never a good thing. Um, my life um, goes so much better when God is in control, as he should be. I have a long way to go to uh, be really completely sold out to God's plan. It's exhausting each time I pray when I'm struggling before a meal or in the grocery store, and God gets me through victorious, I'm so grateful. I feel lighter. It's now been a year since I've gone to the grocery or a drive-up window and eaten junk food. I now have a year of abstinence. Praise God. My parents' dysfunction left me insecure, indecisive, and a people pleaser. So in the last couple of months, I've been spending a lot of time grieving. I've been grieving a normal, safe childhood as a means to put it to rest and move on. Jesus, my higher power, is holding me close and binding up the wounds of my heart. Um, he's also giving me the courage to speak up, to trust, to be honest, and to love more and more. I've been serving in this church and community, doing my best to use my talents for God's glory. Now Jesus is asking me to serve from a place of weakness, not my strength. And it's hard. It's so hard. But the benefits of real relationships, God's mercy, and his courage in me far outweighs my fears. I'm so glad God brought Celebrate Recovery to Windsor Road through Gary and Carol Wackerlin and through the leadership team that guides by example with their real ups and downs, their successes and failures, their honesty about who they are and who really has the power to change them, to change us all. I've been a part of this church for more than 28 years, and I can tell you with certainty that having the ministry of Celebrate Recovery in this building has caused a cultural shift here. Windsor Road is even more a place where it's okay to say, I'm struggling, I'm hurting, I need help, than it used to be. Yes, it makes a difference that the senior pastor here attends CR, his wife attends CR, but there is a spirit of acceptance and kindness that wasn't here eight years ago, and it's growing. It's growing by the work of God through his Holy Spirit. Remember the sermon series we're in, passages that pump me up? Well, here's mine. For it is God who works in you, to both will and to act for his good pleasure, Philippians 2.13. I want to get out of the way and let God work in me for his good pleasure. His kingdom come, his will be done. Because of God's objective goodness, when he is pleased, then ultimately I'm way more pleased. If this is your first Sunday at Windsor Road, take a deep breath. For most of us, it's hard to walk into a church, especially a huge place like this for the first time. We wonder what it'll be like. How will I be received? What will people think of me? What will the people be like? But here's the thing. Everyone has hurts, habits, and hang-ups. 
everyone. Windsor Road Christian Church is where you'll find kindness, understanding, and the love of Jesus to help you along your journey. Thanks for letting me share. You should preach more often. Strength through brokenness. So, um, just having experienced all that we've experienced so far this morning, church family, if, if you could imagine God looking at you right now, if you could imagine God looking at you, what expression does he have on his face? Well, if I'm honest with myself, my default answer would be that God... I think, looks at me with frustration and disappointment, wondering why I can't get my act together, why I can't get a grip on that sin that just won't go away. And what's driving that is, you know, a perception of God that is closely connected to how well I think I'm fulfilling the law. And what's driving that is a heart that thinks it can earn God's love. But the fact is this. I fall short in so many ways. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. And so then I find myself projecting my frustrations with myself onto God assuming that he must be just as irritated with me as I am. If the God of the universe intimately knows every dark corner of my heart, how could he look at me any other way? And that view of God is flawed. The truth is, the truth is that God has every right to look at me with irritation but he doesn't. Psalm 103, verse 14 says, he knows our frame. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. God knows my frame. God knows that I'm weak. God knows that I'm dust. God knows that left to myself, I would gravitate to self-destructive habits. Without Christ, I would be wallowing in the sin of white supremacy. We don't gather here in worship because, you know, we're so proud of ourselves because we're not the type of people that would be causing all that trouble in Virginia. That's not why we're here. We're here because Jesus rescued us from an otherwise inescapable darkness. Jesus paid the ultimate sacrifice for me. And by grace through faith in him, God the Father sees me clothed in the righteousness of his son. And he looks at me 
in him with an expression of unending love, complete acceptance, and unwavering mercy, rejoicing over us who were lost but now are found. And so now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And nothing can separate us from his love. Now I can squirm in his grip and despise him for holding me and no doubt get myself in one hot mess by doing so. But because Jesus is the almighty resurrected king of creation, then he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Amen. Every week we remember God's good work in a time called communion. And we're going to have that now. Communion um, was given to us by Jesus. And trays will be passed, a cup and a piece of bread. And they represent the good, perfect work of our King who lived and loved and died and was buried and raised and ascended and has sent his Holy Spirit upon us so that we might be his temple displaying his love to a dark world. And in communion, we just remember it's all about Jesus. We remember him. We remember who he is. And by remembering who he is, we know who we are. Don't feel like you need to be a member at Windsor Road. If you have received Jesus as your king, if you're a Christian, then please, the family has gathered. The king is serving. Enjoy his feast. Shall we pray?